Please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. And if uh, you're lacking a Bible this morning, just raise your hand and uh, one will be provided to you. Acts 18. We're going to read verse 1, and we're going to go down through verse 17. And Luke writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. Because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles." And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. When Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sothenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. Let's pray. Father, as the word is preached this morning, I pray that you would open our hearts. I pray that we would have ears to hear your word this morning, that we would understand it and know it, know how to apply it to our lives. God, I pray for Pastor Steve as he preaches that your spirit would strengthen him and guide him, Lord, and that you would be glorified and honored through the preaching and teaching and hearing of the word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Happy New Year. Hope you guys had a good um, uh, Christmas and New Year celebration. Um, kind of kind of a light crowd this morning, but it was higher attendance than last week. So that's good because we didn't have church last week. But anyway, um, all right. Failed attempt at starting a, off with humor this morning. It is 2011. For me, that's kind of hard to believe. I mean, that's such a space AG number, you know, 2011. I saw back in November, I think it was the, the 25th anniversary of Back to the Future. Remember the movie, Back to the Future, which came out in 1985? And that blows me away. Now, in Back to the Future 2, they go 30 years into the future to 2015. That's not very far away. I want to know where my flying car is. All right, and, and the Cubs are supposed to win the World Series at some point in the next four years as well. I don't know. But anyway, it's amazing that it is 2011. It's just a, it, it blows me away. But um, I hope that you've had a, a good new year. This time of year is the time of year when we, we look forward to what's coming up and we set resolutions. We set perhaps some goals or some aims for our family, for ourselves personally for the year, but it's also a time of year that is a time of reflection. We look back on 2010, and I think because of that, sometimes this time of year can be a bit of a downer. 
I think there's a reason that suicides are their highest during the Christmas and New Year season. Sometimes we look back and we didn't accomplish the things we set for ourselves in 2010 and we're a bit down. Or maybe there were some detours that came into our life in 2010 that we were not expecting and we're just a little bit frustrated by that. Maybe things just haven't quite gone the way that we had planned. And so I think at this time of year, sometimes we can be a bit frustrated, down, maybe even feel uh, a little bit deflated. To kind of illustrate that, I got a, oh, I got a couple of things here. Now, let's pretend, kids, that I'm a clown. I know it's not hard to imagine. Um, and if you're at a fair or at a, um, I don't know, a birthday party that has a clown there or something, okay, and the clown came up to you and wanted to give you a balloon, which balloon would make you more excited? This one. How about over here? Which balloon would you want? Yes, okay? No clown walks up and gives a kid a deflated balloon, okay? What kind of clown is that? A bad one, all right? You give them a a balloon that's fun to play with, something that's inflated, right? But I think sometimes, I think hopefully you're coming into 2011 feeling like this, right? Up and, all right, ready to tackle this 2011, and maybe you're in you're intending, you're going to invent the flying car this year. You know. But maybe you're coming in this morning feeling like this. And that's me, I'll be honest with you. Maybe you're a little bit down and um, maybe you're just, it's not that anything's gone wrong in 2010, you're just tired. Maybe it's good things that have happened in 2010 that have left you just feeling exhausted. And so I want to, I think it's providential. I know it's providential because God works all things together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. But we are in Acts chapter 18, and it just so happens that this is a period in Paul's life that I believe that we can can surmise from the text here that he is a bit down. I think he's a bit deflated in this text today. And so, what? Oh, I'll give you your pen back. Sorry. There you go. So I think Paul is, is coming into Corinth here, and he's a bit down. He's a bit deflated. He needs some encouragement from God to keep on, to keep on going, to, 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 to hang in there. And I think we can see from this text today four different ways that God encourages Paul and helps him to keep going. And I think we can take those things and we can apply them to our life this morning as well. So if you're here today and you feel like the yellow balloon, this is a word for you this morning. Just as much as God meant these things for Paul as well. I think he's deeply um, discouraged at this point. I think he may be a bit disheartened at this point in his journey. And you may be wondering, well, where do you you get that from the text? Well, I get that from a couple of different places. First of all, verse 9 of this text, it says this. This is when Jesus appears to Paul, and this is part of his way of encouraging him, and we'll get to that in a little bit, but this is what Jesus says. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Now why would Jesus come and and give Paul this message if he wasn't afraid, if he wasn't struggling a little bit right now, if he wasn't a bit fearful about continuing on and continuing to speak If he wasn't perhaps tempted to be silent and just not say anything anymore because it causes so much trouble. So I think we can get an indication from that text right there that this is a period in Paul's life where he's down. But also, when you're you're studying Acts, one of the awesome things about about Scripture, specifically Acts, is that Paul also wrote letters. He wrote epistles that we have. And those were written during the events, many of them were written during the events of Acts. And so sometimes we can go to those letters. For example, First and Second Thessalonians were written during this passage of Scripture right here. When it says that Paul spends a year and a half in Corinth, during that time he writes back to the churches that he's just planted in Thessalonica. So he's writing to those churches during that time. So reading those texts gives us some insight into Paul's frame of mind as well during this time. 
Or you can look at the letters he wrote to the church in Corinth. After he leaves Corinth, he, he writes them letters as well. And, and he recalls some of the things that happened while he was there. And, and reading those texts also give us some insight into Paul's frame of mind. For example, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 3. This is what Paul says about coming to Corinth. He says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. That's how Paul comes into Corinth. Feeling weak, fearful, with much trembling. I think he's down. I think he's deflated. I think he's in need of some encouragement. Now why was Paul in this frame of mind? Well, first of all, because he's human. I think sometimes we read the, uh, the epistles or we read Acts and we have this image of Paul as a superhero. He's got the big S on his chest or maybe a big P on his chest or something. And he's just invincible. We've got to remember that, that Paul is human. He's also a sinner like you and I. And he struggles with things just like you and I. And he speaks of those things in the scriptures. He speaks of his weaknesses in 2 Corinthians and how Christ's power has been made perfect in his weaknesses. And so, first of all, he's human. Secondly, I think he's probably physically worn down. The dude's been traveling all over the known world by foot. I mean, I get tired when I drive to Arkansas, and it's just 12 hours, and I get done, I'm like, oh, I'm so tired. Paul's walking all over the world. When he's not walking, he's on ships, like he, the ship that took him to Athens. But those weren't cruise ships. Those weren't very nice of comfortable rides. And so he's got to be physically exhausted simply from the travel he's been on. But also he's, he's, he's beaten up. He's beaten up emotionally and all that, but he's also physically, he's been beaten up. I mean, the, on the first missionary journey, he was stoned within an inch of his life, no telling what long-term effects that had. Matter of fact, a lot of people think that that stoning is what led to some of his physical ailments that he speaks of when he talks about his thorn in the flesh, when he talks about his eyes having problems. I mean, if you get hit with a big rock in the head, it may mess up your eyesight. So who knows what physical ailments he still has from the first missionary journey, but we also know that on this missionary journey, when he gets to Philippi, he gets brutally beaten up, thrown in jail, tortured basically. And so no telling what he's going through physically just because of the, the experience of the persecution he's been in. And as I've already mentioned, he also had some ailments. We know that he had problems with his eyes and, and maybe some other ailments as well. And it happens to be that on this particular part of the journey, his doctor's not with him. Remember, Luke is his physician. Luke stayed behind in Philippi. And here's Paul with his ailments. His, he's physically worn down and fatigued. Also, I think he's probably emotionally worn down. He's frustrated and tired of the continual opposition that he gets from the Jews. Now remember that Paul loved his Jewish brothers. I mean, you guys in here, some of you have shared with me, and I've shared with you that my brother, um, you've shared with me some of your relatives who aren't walking with the Lord. And, and that's, that's terribly exhausting. And, and it kills you emotionally to think about a relative, a close friend or a relative who's not walking with the Lord, who doesn't know the Lord. And so here's Paul, and we remember what he said in Romans 9, 3. He says this, I, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So he's emotionally just, every city he goes into, maybe he's thinking, oh, hopefully it'll be different here, and a great number of my brothers will embrace their Messiah. But every city he goes into is pretty much the same thing. Some of them do. A good number of Gentiles do, but the majority of his brothers, the Jews, reject the Messiah. Not only reject the Messiah, but curse him and begin to persecute him. So he's frustrated with the rejection of the Messiah by his own people. He's frustrated with the blindness of the Gentiles, which probably led to some mental fatigue as well. He just got done ministering in Athens, which was the intellectual capital of the world. And what was he called? He was called a, a, a seed picker. He was called a, basically a, a, a pseudo-intellectual. And here he is making a very wise and intellectual argument about Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. And he's using general revelation to try to prove to these people that there is a one God and it, Jesus is the one way to that one God. And I imagine he's also just spiritually worn down. 
He was so upset by the idolatry in Athens. Remember how he reacted? He, I don't think he was planning on originally doing ministry in Athens, but he gets there and he's so torn up by all the idolatry. I think he spiritually was worn down. And if he wasn't worn down spiritually by the idolatry of Athens, well, then he's going to be worn down by the immorality of Corinth. Here comes Paul walking into Corinth. It says, verse 1, that he left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, Corinth was a big city, probably between 750,000 people to 1 million people. That is a huge city for that time. It's a gigantic city. Compared to Athens, Athens was probably about 10,000 people. So it's a much bigger city than Athens. Now, Athens was the university town. The intellectual elites gathered there. It was the center for philosophy and rhetoric. But Corinth, Corinth was more like a blue-collar town. And it was the financial center of Greece. There are three C's that uh, James Boyce, in his great commentary on this passage, gives us three C's to kind of sum up what Corinth was like. It was, it was cosmopolitan, meaning that there was all kinds of people from all over the world, from all walks of life, in this huge city. So we can kind of imagine it's like a New York City. People from all over the world here. It's a cosmopolitan just conglomeration of people from all over the place. It was commercial. As I mentioned earlier, it was the commercial center of Greece, uh, of, the, of, the, of the Grecian part of the Roman Empire there, because it was situated on the isthmus between the Aegean Sea and the Agoran Sea. It was a perfect location for ships to travel. Matter of fact, they began to construct a canal there. Nero began to construct it. He didn't finish it. It wasn't finished to the 1800s. But what ships would do, they'd come in on this side of Corinth. They would unload their goods, carry it across town, and load it on another ship as it took off on the other side. It was too dangerous to go around the point of Greece. And so this was the best way to get goods into the next other part of the sea. Sometimes they would even take ships apart. If the ships were small enough, they'd actually disassemble the ship and all the goods, and carry it through town, and reassemble it on the other side so it could continue to go. So this was a major commercial center. So it was cosmopolitan, it was commercial, and it was also corrupt. It was terribly corrupt. It was noted for its immoral behavior, particularly its sexual immorality. If Athens was the equivalent to, let's say, Cambridge, well, then Corinth is the equivalent maybe to Vegas or New Orleans, okay? As uh, Deemer was going to preach this passage a couple of weeks ago or last week when nobody showed up, so I'm preaching it this week, but Deemer said, what stays in Corinth, what's, what's done in Corinth stays in Corinth. They could have used Vegas' slogan, okay? What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. It was an immoral town. Matter of fact, there was a phrase that people used. To, they said, to Corinthianize. That was, a, that was a phrase used to refer to someone who was engaging in promiscuous sexuality or someone who was um, practicing debauchery. So it wasn't a pleasant term to refer to, to, to have your morality compared to someone from Corinth wasn't a very pleasant thing. So this is a terribly immoral city. There had lots of temples there. They had a temple to the sun god, uh, Apollos. Uh, Apollo, sorry. They had a, a temple to... Um, the uh, God of healing. But there was one temple that stood out above all the other temples in Corinth. It was a temple to the goddess Aphrodite or the Roman goddess Venus. If you know what that goddess is, if you know your Roman and your Greek mythology, that's the god of sexuality. And the way you worshiped this god was you would go into one of the thousand cult prostitutes that surrounded the temple. And that's how you would worship this god. And that temple was the center of the city. Everything revolved around that city. All the commercial, everything revolved around that temple. Now this had to be overwhelming to Paul. Think about it. He's walking into this environment, and he's walking in alone. For the first time on his missionary journeys, with the exception of coming into Athens, he's walking into this city alone. That's another reason that he's perhaps down. He's alone. He's in Corinth alone. Can you imagine that? Okay? Imagine walking into that type of city all alone. Now, the reason he's alone is that, um, well, if you remember from the text, Paul, I mean Saul, I mean, sorry, Silas and Timothy stayed behind in Thessalonica and in Berea to help strengthen those 
churches there. And he went on to Athens because the Jews wanted to kill him. So they got him out of there and sent him down to Athens. And he was waiting there for his brothers to come join him. Now, apparently, Luke doesn't go into details here, but apparently at some point they did rejoin him in Athens. But he sent them back to Berea and back to Thessalonica to encourage the brothers. Apparently, Paul was very anxious about some things he'd heard about in the churches that he'd just planted. He was worried about some things that were going on there. We read about this in 1 Thessalonians 3. Remember, 1 Thessalonians was written from Corinth. He says this, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. So we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one would be moved by these afflictions. So apparently the church in Thessalonica is being afflicted. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Here's another reason Paul's probably down. He's terribly anxious about these churches he's planted in Thessalonica and in Berea and in Philippi. These churches of Macedonia, he's so anxious about them. And I'll tell you as someone, as a preacher of the gospel... And, and, and you know that you're, you're praying about and you're worrying about the, the spiritual walk of different people that you are under your care as a shepherd. You worry about that. You really do. And you see things happening and you begin to worry about things in people's lives. And, and I think that's what's happening Paul here. He's, he's anxious about this group of people, these churches that he's started. And that surely has him a bit down as well. So he sends his brothers back to deal with these anxieties that he's having. And now here he is entering this mission field, this horrible place called Corinth, with fear and trembling and alone. So with that in mind, I want us to look at today's passage and identify some ways that God brought encouragement and strength to Paul to help him keep on going. And then I want to apply these to us as well. So the title of today's passage is Keep Going, Keeping On, Keeping On. And the first thing I want us to see is that God kept Paul going by bringing people into his life. God kept Paul going by bringing people into his life. Like I said, Paul was all alone. That's huge. Okay, he's, he's going into this scary city all along, all alone. But the first thing God does, the first thing we read about when he gets to Corinth, it's awesome. God sends him people, and not just people, friends, and not just friends, Jews, and not just Jews, Christians. He puts people in, his, in, in Paul's life to help him during this time. Verse 2 says, And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade. When it says here he found a Jew named Aquila, the, 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 word, the verb there for found doesn't refer to going and searching something out. It, it refers to almost kind of accidental. He just happened upon, it could be translated, he happened upon. He happened upon a Jew named Aquila. Now sometimes God's sovereignty leaps off the pages of Scripture. For example, later on in this text when God says, Jesus says, I've got many people in this city. Sometimes God's sovereignty just leaps off the passage and you can't deny it at all. And sometimes it's much more subtle. And I love this little passage right here because it's so subtle. So here you have two Jews by the name of Aquila and Priscilla. Now they're from Pontus. Pontus is one of the regions that Paul was forbidden to go to earlier, by the way, which I think is another interesting thing. God keeps bringing people into Paul's life from the regions he was forbidden to go into. So they're from that region, but apparently they live in Rome. It says here that they, were, uh, that they had come from Italy, probably Rome, because, and they were kicked out of Rome because of what happened. Uh, the text here refers to it. Claudius in AD 49, Luke's a good historian. In AD 49, this is all happening probably around AD 50 or 51, but in AD 49, Claudius had pronounced an edict and told all the Jews to get out of town. 
Now, the reason he did that, according to the uh, historian, um, I mean, Suetonius, according to the historian Suetonius, who was actually writing his history over 100 years later, uh, Suetonius refers to the fact that Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome because of disputes, of riots that were being, uh, that were rising up because of a Jew named Christus. So because of a Jew named Christus, there were riots starting. And most historians, even secular historians, agree that what Suetonius is referring to there is the Latin word Christus. And that there were riots that were, that were being stirred up in Rome because of Jesus. The Jews, just like they did everywhere Paul proclaimed Christ, just like everywhere that Jesus was proclaimed as Messiah, Christ, Christus, everywhere he was proclaimed as Christ, the Jews revolted and started riots. It happens almost in every town Paul goes to. And it happened in Rome as well. Now what's cool about this is that Paul hasn't been to Rome yet. Which means the gospel has already gotten to Rome. There's already Christians in Rome. Okay, the, Luke's just kind of been having our focus on Paul here and his journeys. But we don't know how far the gospel's already been reaching. After the day of Pentecost and there were Jews from all over the known world there on that day. And they were all hearing the gospel in their own language. They spread back out across the world. And some of them have gone to Rome. And the gospel has been preached in Rome. And apparently it has stirred up problems amongst the Jewish communities just like it did everywhere else. And riots are beginning. And so Claudius says, I'm not having any of this. And he expels all the Jews from Rome. Now, this is really cool. So the gospel gets to Rome. We don't know how. And there's an uproar over the gospel in Rome amongst the Jews. So they get expelled and get sent back into the Roman Empire. So God sends two Christian Jews out of Rome to a city called Corinth to be there for a specific time in a specific place for a specific man, his man, Paul, who needed encouragement. And they weren't just Jews. They were also tent makers. They were the same trade as Paul. So here's probably what happened. Paul gets into town, okay? He's looking for some work. He's, he doesn't have his support network with him anymore. His co-workers are not with him, and he doesn't have money. Another reason perhaps he was down, okay? Another reason that perhaps he's just not in a good place right now. He doesn't have the finances to do his ministry. So he goes to work. Every good Jewish boy and rabbi had a trade that they practiced, that they could practice on the side if need be. Rabbis were taught a trade so that they could practice, so they could do work while they were still teaching. And so Paul has a trade. He's a tent maker. And so he goes into Corinth. He says, I've got to get some work. I've got to have some financial provision. And he goes and he probably says, where's the local tent maker? And so he goes and he finds the local tent maker. And lo and behold, by God's sovereign providential decree, the tent maker is not only a Jew, but a Christian. And it's just awesome how God works the details together. And to me, that's tremendously encouraging. Because as you're going through and as I'm going through difficulties and as we're facing challenges in 2011, I am just tremendously encouraged to know that God is working things out and he's got people. And not just people, he's got friends. And not just friends, he has brothers and sisters who are there for me. And that is just tremendously encouraging as I face 2011. So they show him hospitality, they house him, they allow him to work alongside them, and they become two of Paul's most important co-workers in the gospel from this point forward. Priscilla and Aquila become two of Paul's most important partners in the ministry. 2 Timothy 4.9 places them in Ephesus working alongside Timothy. 1 Corinthians 16.19, we see that there's a church meeting in their home. In Romans 16, 3 through 4, they're back in Rome, and now uh, they've got a church in that home, in Rome. And next week, we'll see how instrumental they were in helping a, another uh, gospel preacher by the name of, of Apollos gain a better understanding of the gospel. Okay, and, and it's very interesting. I'm not going to linger here, but it's very interesting that this is one of the few texts that actually refers to him as Aquila, who was the husband, and Priscilla. From this point forward, with the exception of one text, from this point forward, it's referred to as Priscilla and Aquila. Which was very odd for Paul's day and age to refer to the wife first. So apparently Priscilla has a particularly important role in the early church and is better known 
by the churches during that time. But this couple was instrumental in helping Paul get his ministry started in Corinth. Paul was working to support himself and is preaching the gospel in his free time, mainly on the Sabbath, where he was proclaiming the gospel. Verse 4 says, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So he's in the synagogue just like he's done in every other city. He goes to the synagogue first, to the Jews first. He reasons with them. He reasons with the Greeks. And he tries to persuade them with the truth. So in A.D. 50, God brought encouragement into Paul's life through people, through a brother and sister in Christ. And I want us to know that in A.D. 2011, that God wants to encourage us too. This Christian life is not meant to be lived in a vacuum. It's not meant to be lived in isolation. We're created for companionship. We're created for fellowship. We're created for family. The only way we can face the challenges of 2011 is to be friends with one another, but to be more than that because the church isn't called just to be a social club with a bunch of friends. We are to be family with one another. We are to serve each other as brothers and sisters. We are to sacrifice for one another. And it's the only way that you can make it and that I can make it in 2011 is if our local body of Christ comes together and serves and loves each other the way we're supposed to. Hebrews 10, 24 says, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet with one another, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Christians, we are... We, we proclaim Christ. We proclaim the Godhead when we exercise true Christian fellowship. Because God, in, his, in the Trinity, God has perfect union, perfect fellowship, perfect companionship. He doesn't need you. Don't ever buy into the false teaching that God created man because he was lonely. It's one of the worst teachings that you could ever hear. You hear it? It's not in Genesis. It doesn't say God was lonely. He doesn't need people. God has perfect companionship within the Godhead. Perfect fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we as believers image God when we show that type of fellowship and unity and love within the church. It should be one of the things that the world looks at and says, there's something supernatural there. It should be what happens in the church. So we need Christ-exalting, Trinity-imaging fellowship and community, and that's how we're going to keep going in 2011. The next thing I want us to see, number two, that God kept Paul going by supplying provision for his life. Not only did he bring people into his life, he supplies provision for his life. Okay, first of all, he gave him employment. He walks into town. Paul had no guarantee that there was going to be any open tent maker jobs, but God had, like we already mentioned, Jewish Christians ready to go right there with employment for Paul. And so we see provision, that's already huge. Paul needed some sort of employment to help him do his ministry. Now, let me say this. Paul preferred to devote all of his time to ministry. We know that clear from the scripture, that he preferred to devote all of his time to the ministry. That's what he would have rather have been doing. But at this season in his life, the resources were not there. God did provide for him, but it may not have been exactly the way Paul wanted it. That's something we've got to embrace in 2011. God has promised to provide. That is a promise from Scripture. God will meet all your needs. But we come into 2011 a lot of time looking for God to provide our needs in the way we want them met, in the amount we want them met with, in the venue we want them met with, and And God may not have that in mind. His means of provision may be totally different than what we are expecting and what we desire. Paul speaks of this period in his life in both of his letters to the Corinthians. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians 9, 2 Corinthians 11. But then Paul brings other provision in, I mean God brings other provision into Paul's life. In Acts 18, verse 5, it says, When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia... Paul was occupied with the word. What this means is when Timothy and Silas show up, when they come, they also bring with them provision. And now Paul's able to devote his full time to the ministry. He's able to give all of his energies to preaching, teaching the gospel. The community of Christian brothers has expanded now. Silas, Timothy are here. Apparently they brought with them a gift. We read about it in 2 Corinthians eleven seven. It says this, he, Paul speaking to the Corinthians, trying to help them understand how he 
acted in good faith when he came to them. He says, did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia, that's Timothy, Silas, supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. So Paul receives supernatural provision from the churches in Macedonia. By the way, the churches in Macedonia throughout Scripture have a remarkable tendency towards generosity. And it allows him to be occupied with the word so that he can, as it says in verse 5, he can testify to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. He's preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the King. He stays on course. He stays on course with his message. Just as a little side note here. Sometimes when we're facing deflated feelings, deflated circumstances in our life, the temptation is to change course. Paul stays the course. He continues to preach the gospel. He doesn't change his message. The gospel is his message, plain and simple. And as predictable as the sun rising in the east, he's opposed by the Jews. Verse 6. It says, And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. They opposed him. The word here for opposed, it, it, it basically means they declared war on him. A war on him. They set up in battle array is, is, the, is the term. So they opposed him. They, they declared war on him. They reviled him. It means they blasphemed him. And this is the same response he'd gotten from Jews everywhere he went. The Jews who wanted a Messiah in their own image. The Jews who didn't want a Messiah who suffered and died. The Jews who wanted a Messiah who was going to come and wipe out these stinking Romans. That's what the Jews wanted. And they didn't want a king that was a suffering servant. They hated that king and they hated that king's messengers. And Paul's response, and we saw it before in chapter 13 verse 46. Okay, He turns to these Jews, says he's done with them, shakes the dust off his feet. I'm done with you and now I'm going to the Gentiles. He's referring to the Gentiles in this city. He continues as he goes to other cities to go to synagogues first. But in this city, he's done. I'm done with you Jews, shaking off the dust from my feet. He's been a faithful watchman, just like the watchman in Ezekiel 33. He's done his duty. And now the blood, these Jews' blood, is on their own hands. They have freely rejected their Messiah, and thus they justly deserve death, eternal death. They were offered a cure for their disease, their sin, but they rejected it. And they will die in it. But Paul now has provision for his ministry to keep on preaching the gospel. Boldly preaching it like he's doing right here in these texts. And as his ministry ratchets up, so does the opposition. Okay? No longer is he welcome in the synagogue. Okay? He, he leaves the synagogue. And in verse 7 it says, He left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. So now he has no synagogue to teach in, to worship in on the Sabbath. No problem. God brings more provision into his life. God provides a location for ministry. This Roman man by the name of Titius Justus was apparently either sympathetic with the gospel, or he was a God-fearer, or he was a Christian. He was a believer. Some believe this guy's name was, another name he had was Gaius, because in 1 Corinthians 1, 14, Paul refers to the first converts in, in Corinth, and, and one of those is a guy by the name of Gaius. We don't know for sure if that's who this is. But the location is certainly interesting. Where is it? It's next to the synagogue. He opens up shop right next door to the synagogue so he can continue to proclaim the Messiah to the Jews and the Gentiles. In A.D. 50, God provided for Paul by supplying provision in his life. In A.D. 11, God will provide for you this year brother and sister in Christ, God will provide for you. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus, is what Philippians 4.19 says. And Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. It may not come in the amount that we want. It may not come the way we want. It may not come in the timing we want. 
but we can have confidence that God will supply all our needs. You may be looking down 2011 and wondering, how on earth are we going to make it this year? You can have confidence, just as Paul did, that God will provide. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, 35, not to be anxious about our life. Not to worry about what we're going to eat, what we're going to wear. But to seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things shall be added to us as well. Day by day is the way we are to take the Christian life. It doesn't mean we're not wise and we don't plan for the future and we don't save. That's not what I'm talking about. Your hope can't be in your savings. Your hope can't be in how well you plan. Your hope is daily in Christ. Just as he gave the manna, when Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread, every Jew that was listening to him knew exactly what he was talking about. He's, he's referring to the manna that, Jesus gave, that God gave every morning to the Jews. And a double supply on Friday so they can make it through the Sabbath. And so God will provide everything we need. God will supply needs for his people. The next thing I want us to see is that God kept Paul going by producing fruit from his life. Verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Just as with the provision, God may bring fruit out of your life. And all of us are ministers. You are all ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether you embrace that title or not. Okay? I am a full-time Paid minister of the gospel. I have a role in the church as pastor, shepherd, elder, overseer. But every member of the church is called to minister. My job is to equip you to minister. That's Deemer's job as well. Is to equip you to go out and do ministry. So you all have a ministry. And therefore you are all to be fruitful with that ministry. And God will bring fruit from your ministry if you're being faithful to, your, to his ministry through you. Remember, Paul was faithful to the message here. He didn't deviate. He continues to preach, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. He could have deviated. Athens was a very frustrating circumstance. A church didn't even start in Athens. He could have come to Corinth and said, man, i got to totally revisit the strategy. But instead, he doubles down. He says, you know what? I'm going to preach Christ and Christ crucified alone. He gets busy with the gospel when he gets to Corinth. Matter of fact, I think, if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I think he looks back at Athens and says, I'm done with all that philosophical gobbledygook. I'm preaching Christ crucified. From this point forward, he stays on course. And so you have a ministry. You have a ministry primarily in your home. You are to be ministers of the gospel in your home. That's your first primary ministry. And then you have other ministries in your workplace, in your neighborhood, with friends, husbands, with your spouse, with your wife. You have ministries. And they are to be producing fruit. And I believe that one of the ways God encourages us is that he brings fruit from our ministry when we are faithful. It may not be exactly the fruit you're expecting. I'll be the first to admit that planting a church, I had images of what the fruit looked like. And the fruit hasn't always looked exactly like what I thought it would look like. That's okay, because God's fruit's much better than my fruit. And so, move forward in 2011. Keep going, knowing that God produces fruit in those who are faithful to Him. Paul has fruit here. Crispus. Now, what a name. Okay? I, I, you know, there's lots of names people use from the Bible. John, Peter. I've never heard anyone name their child Crispus. Hey, this is my son Crispus. Oh, you know. I actually heard, saw a funny video once because Paul only baptized a few people in Corinth. It says that a lot of people were baptized there. Well, Paul only baptized Crispus, Gaius, and Stephanus. Those are the only ones he baptized. We can read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And, uh, and I saw this video once teaching people about baptism, and they called it Crispus Cremus. And they, took a, they had a Krispy Kreme donut, and they showed how it got dunked in the oil, and then it got covered, and it was all sweet when it was done. And anyway, they used that as an illustration. I have never been able to find the video, and it's a stupid video anyway. But I was reminded of it as I mentioned the Crispus name here, and now I'm hungry. So Crispus is saved. Now Crispus is the leader of the synagogue. He's what they would have called the president of the synagogue. He's the pastor of the synagogue. Okay, that'd be like down here there is a, um, a Mormon facility. I won't call it a church. There's a Mormon facility. Let's say that 
president, the pastor of the Mormon facility, were all of a sudden to come to Christ. Come next door. Come on over. That's what happens. How alarming that had to be to the Jews there. That the leader of the synagogue is believing that this Messiah, this suffering, so this, this criminal who was crucified and humiliated, that is not our Messiah, Christmas. And he leaves and he says, yes, that's my Messiah. And he embraces Christ and embraces the cleansing forgiveness that comes through Christ. And so in 2011, God has a ministry for you. And if you remain faithful, he'll make you fruitful. Be be excited about that. Let that encourage you. James 5, 7 says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth? Be patient about it until it receives, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. Be patient as God continues to work in your life. 1 Corinthians 15 Writing to the Corinthian church, he says this, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If you're struggling with a, with a child who seems to be rebelling and, and you just don't see the fruit, take heart. Your labor is not in vain. You may never see the fruit, but be encouraged. God is bringing fruit. Somehow, someway, God is bringing fruit. And he may be just bringing fruit in you, teaching you patience. Who knows? God has all sorts of ways he brings fruit. He brings fruit out of some of the most unusual places in our lives. But if we'll be faithful to our ministry, he will bring fruit. It's not in vain. It says here in this passage that many people in Corinth believed in Christ. But the last thing I want us to focus on is that God kept Paul going by giving him a word for his life. Verse 9, Paul gets a direct revelation from Jesus Christ. Okay, I want to be careful here as I preach this part because I don't want to say that we all should be expecting to have a dream tonight and Jesus tell us something about 2011. It's not what I'm saying. But I want to look at what God says to Paul first. Jesus is speaking directly to Paul here. He says, do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I'm with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And so after that, Paul stays for a year and a half. So this tremendous word of encouragement. Do not be afraid. Don't fear in 2011. Go on speaking. Continue to do your work. Continue to do what God's called you to do. Continue to use your trade, whatever God's called you to do. Go, do not be silent. I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. He doesn't say you're not going to have any trouble because trouble comes in the next verses. He says no one's going to attack you to harm you. In this specific case, Jesus had a specific word for Paul. I imagine he got kind of disappointed. Once, every time he begins to see fruit, what happens in every city? The Jews rise up, start a riot, run him out of town. So he's probably a little bit worried about that right now. God says, hey, don't worry about it. Hang tight. There's going to be many more that come to Christ. I have many in this city who are my people. The bedrock of God's encouraging words is his sovereign will. There are many in the city who are his. The bedrock of God's encouragement to us is his sovereign will. Okay? God works all things together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. That is the bedrock of encouragement for the believer as you go into 2011. The bedrock of the encouragement here to Paul is God's sovereignty. The bedrock for us is God's sovereignty as well. He has it all planned out. We are to trust in him. Again, in this passage, we see God's sovereignty alongside man's responsibility. The Jews are responsible for their rejection of their Messiah. Paul was responsible to go on speaking and not be silent. Yet God is the one who's in control and only God knows whose people are his and whose are not. Our responsibility is to keep on working. So what about this word that Paul received? Should we expect the same thing? Yes, we should expect the same thing. And we've been given it. It's right here. We don't need a dream in the middle of the night. You have 66 volumes of God's direct, clear revelation to you. This is a lot more words than what Jesus said to Paul in the middle of the night. Right here. 
66 volumes of clear revelation to get you through 2011. Right here. You don't need anything else. 66 volumes of guidance. 66 volumes of encouragement. 66 volumes of strength. 66 volumes of a living and active word that are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 66 volumes to be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. 66 volumes breathed out by God himself and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that we might be competent, equipped for every good work. 66 volumes in which he has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Sixty-six volumes that point to Jesus and Jesus alone as King. Sixty-six volumes that show that Jesus was your Messiah. He was your suffering Messiah. Sixty-six volumes that point that Jesus not only suffered for you and died for you, but that he is a victorious King, a victorious Messiah who rose again. What other encouragement do you need that 66 volumes that point to the Son of God and said he did it for you? What else do you need in 2011? I don't need anything else. I can't explain what's going to happen in 2011. There's a lot of uncertainty in my life. And I'm tired. December wiped me out. There's things I didn't get. I just dropped the lamp to my feet and the light into my path. What a horrible example. All I can say is that 2011 is a year that God is going to bring people into your life, whatever you're going through, to be here for you. And he's challenging you to be there for someone. 2011 is a year that God's going to provide for you, not maybe exactly the way you hoped, maybe far more than you ever imagined. 2011 is a year that God's going to bring fruit from your life if you'll be faithful to him. And 2011 is a year that God's got a word for you. And he's got a word for me. If there's anything else I can do to encourage you to keep on going in 2011, forget the first three points and just focus on that last one. Every year we start off the year, and so it's not going to be any different this year, with a focus on the spiritual disciplines. And so the spiritual discipline I want you to focus on in 2011 is intake of God's Word. Breathe it. Eat it. Taste it. Wallow in it. Let it come oozing out of your pores because you've got so much of it in you. That will get you through 2011. So, if you're deflated this morning... Take heart. Take heart. God has given you a word for 2011. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that you have given us a clear, infallible, perfect, inerrant, whatever other adjective we want to use to describe it, word that is as clear and as authoritative as the vision that you gave Paul that night in A.D. 50, as Paul was facing an uncertain future. So God, we don't, you don't mean for us to walk through life with uncertainty and anxiety. You've given us a word to guide us. God, you've done other things in our life as well. You've brought a church body around us, friends, family members, to be our brothers and sisters, to, to, to cry with us when we cry, to, to laugh with us when we laugh. And God, you've, you've provided, oh Lord, we live in a very plush world in America, and you've provided. And God, you may be challenging us to, to cut back and to do some things different in, in 2011, but you're going to provide. And God, we know that if we'll be faithful to being the moms, the dads, the brothers, the sons, the daughters, the sisters, the co-workers, 
the bosses, the neighbors. If we'll be faithful to be the people you've called us to be with the ministries you've placed in our path, that we will see fruit in 2011. I praise you for it. May all the fruit give you glory. May people see our good works and give praise to our Father in heaven. We lift up this time of response to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand if you would as we sing this song. That's the closing song of response. This is the time to respond. Respond to what God's spoken to you this morning. Respond in, in bringing your offerings and your tithes. Respond by bringing your prayer requests this morning. We are the ones. We are the ones who stumbled in darkness. We are the ones who have seen a great light. We are the ones who lurked in the you are the one who shattered our night. You found us out. You called us out. You loved us out.
Uh, just a, a couple of quick things. Um, this is really cool. Um, uh, Bobby McCreary is um, is going to be um, going on a pretty neat ministry. Uh, it's a Super Bowl outreach ministry, and he'll be traveling to uh, Dallas in February for that. Um, this is a great opportunity to share the gospel. It's pretty strategic. I mean, you've got thousands of lost people descending on a city for an event, and I think it's pretty cool and pretty strategic that God's going to have some people there on the ground waiting for them and waiting to share the good news of Jesus with them. Uh, we're excited that he's, he's going to be doing this. There is a little snag, though, and that's transportation. That's getting there. Uh, and uh, he um, did have access to a van where him and some other folks are going to be going down there. But uh, that's fallen through, and so there are still some, uh, some needs for transportation. Uh, they're going to rent a 15-passenger van, and to rent one for several days is going to cost some money, about $650. So uh, we're asking you to pray if you would consider uh, helping out and prov- uh, helping to provide that transportation. Uh, if that's something that you're interested in doing, could you um, write a check, write it to the Harbins, but put on the check what it's for, that this is going to be for the Super Bowl outreach to help Bobby and his team get down to, uh, to Dallas for several days in February and, uh, and preach the gospel to folks. So uh, pray about that, and uh, we certainly appreciate whatever kind of help you can um, give to that. Uh, this is a holiday weekend, and so there is no second hour today. Uh, but we'll resume next week with all of our normal kids and adults Bible studies and all of that. Uh, so uh, that's really it. God bless you. Go in peace. Thanks for coming to worship.